Well, that was excellent. Well, good morning. It's so great to be together this first Sunday of 2019. Have you ever seen the show Antiques Roadshow? Seen that show? If you haven't seen it, it's this uh, the show on, on PBS. Not sure why you needed to know that part of the story. But it's pretty incredible. It's, it's one of those shows you start watching and you're like, why would anybody watch this? And before you know it, five hours later, you're still watching Antiques Roadshow. You just can't stop. The big idea of the show is they travel around to different cities and people from all over bring these antiques in. And appraisers are all over the place and they're able to give an assessment of the value of the antique that many enter uh, believe are incredibly priceless. And, and to be honest, I don't know if this reveals something uh, about myself. I'm not sure I want you to know. My favorite part of the show is when they show the people, they do the backstory on them, and they bring this, this priceless item in their perception, and they bring it in uh, to get it assessed. And they're convinced that they probably need armed security to enter in because it's so valuable. And while it's being pointed out that the object that they think is invaluable and authentic uh, actually is a fraud. It's, 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 there's numerous flaws in it that don't match up with the, what the authentic item ought to look like. And you begin to see their world collapse around them as they realize the thing they thought was priceless is, is actually worthless. And they walk out, and some people stay in such denial about the worth of the item that, that they refuse to hear it, but most people that are rational are, are defeated, and their heads are down, and they're humbled uh, as the item that they once thought was of immense value is actually a counterfeit, uh, something uh, not of any value at all. In our first 10 verses of Galatians, where we'll be at this morning, Paul lays out the foundation of the authentic gospel, the true gospel that's worth your everything. It's worth selling all that you have in pursuing it, buying the field that is yours, that has this true gift, this life-giving gift that is in the nature and the goodness of the gospel. When I say that the gospel is incorruptible, as we'll go throughout our outline in just a few moments, what I mean by that is not that there's not a wealth of counterfeits everywhere, and every culture and every generation must work their way through just this wealth of counterfeits that promise you hope, that promise you peace, but cannot actually give it to you. What I mean by this idea of it being the incorruptible gospel, it's that the true gospel that the Lord has given us, it does not evolve it is not edited, it does not change for generations, but it is unchanging in its very nature. It's incorruptible in its purity and its goodness. So if somebody comes and offers you and says to you it's been changed or it's been lost, as is the tactics of some groups that may go to your doors, the reality is they are not offering you a reinforced foundation, they are offering you quicksand to which they are also in themselves and hope to pull you in with them. So what do we do with this incorruptible gospel? What does it mean for us to be a people that are rooted in the gospel, that believe, as is our series title, that there is no other gospel? The first five verses, we're going to notice the very nature of the foundation that makes the gospel worth your life. It's worth your purpose. It's worth all the breaths that the Lord should give each of us for the rest of our days on this earth. But in verse 6, we're going to take a pivot, and we're going to answer the question, if it's truly incorruptible, then how is it so enticing? How are the false gospels so enticing to so many? What is their secret sauce that, that is an allure on people and for the people of Galatia would be an allure to them? 
They heard the true gospel, and yet here they were being captivated by these false teachers that had come in. So my hope is that this would be insightful to us, not only academically, but that it would fuel us and motivate each of us more today than it did yesterday to understand that the gospel is worth bleeding for. The gospel is worth our time and the discipline of our life to be a people increasingly sold out and committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ because there is no other gospel, no other cause worthy of your life than the one to which we read this morning. So let's begin as we notice first and foremost that our perfect God has given his church an incorruptible gospel. Our perfect God has given his church an incorruptible gospel. Why can we say this? Well, we look first and foremost at point A there, that the incorruptible gospel includes a perfect foundation. This perfect foundation then isn't, isn't reworked, it's not refashioned, it's perfectly given once and for all. Let's look in verse 1 and 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You've got uh, that uh, translation in front of you in the, in the pew back. If you don't have a Bible to follow along, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, verse 1, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, and then the very beginning of verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. Again, Galatia being that region. Before we go into this, I, I can't help always, when I think of Paul, his name means little or small. I think how interesting is that? This peculiar is that, that the Lord in his humor and kindness would choose this man Paul, his name meaning small and little, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. I think there's a beautiful little example in that when we think of what does Paul's name mean, small, that we as Christians likewise would, would take that and build our life on that. Remember, what's it mean to be a Christian? It's that the Lord would become big, I would become Paul, I would become small. Right, that's an anecdote that really doesn't drive our text or come from our text. It's just something I think is interesting. So there you go, congratulations, you got it now. You can win a trivia contest with that. But let's look at our text here. Paul is not appointed by an apostle, uh, as an apostle, by men, even brilliant godly men. But his origins, as he's tying it to it, is to the God of creation, has revealed himself to him. Yahweh has spoken to him. Jesus Christ has met him, and certainly he's referring to his Damascus Road experience. But his point from the very beginning, this is vital. Because what the false teachers are doing that are coming into Galatia, this region with these churches, Antioch and others, is they're coming in and they're trying to say his resume is not actually what you think it is. Our resume is actually better. He's, he's a Jew, yes, and he's studied and he's incredibly gifted, but he's only told you part of the story. He's left part of it out, and so you really aren't actually right with God. You also need to do this. And so the false teachers have come in by doing what? By trying to attack the foundation that it's built upon. Whenever anyone speaks of faith, whenever anyone speaks, they operate from a worldview, a way of viewing the world that must first, before it can make headway, must shake your foundation. That's what the false teachers have done, and that's what Paul's doing. He's reestablishing and reminding them of his true foundation. And the assumption then that he's going to get to as we walk through the letter is that my foundation is of God. The false teachers that are influencing you is of man or of demonic forces, other angels, other places. 
This is why this is so important to us to, to grasp at the very, very beginning of this. Paul's saying, if you oppose me, you oppose not just me, but you oppose the Godhead. That's why this is incredibly vital. Scripture, the very nature of what the Bible is, it's God-breathed. Sometimes scholars and others will, will put in our, even our mainline culture, will put the idea that I like this part, maybe I like the words in red, but I don't like this part. I had a friend once that told me they were newer in the faith and they were reading through the Bible and they said, you know what, I just don't like Paul. I don't really like this, but he sounds arrogant to me. I don't like him. And that was an initial reading and part of it was this book, Galatians. As we go through here, it sounds like he's boasting about a resume. But what that person missed and hadn't been yet at this point trained in or at that point trained in is understanding the nature of the Bible is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. This is what transforms our lives. It's be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we soak it in the Word of God. The Word of God works through us. His Spirit impacts us. And what Paul does from the very beginning of the letter is reassures him that his foundation, his credentials, are given by God. And the gospel is unchanging. And the false teachers who have come in, their credentials are of the flesh and they're of men. And oh, how they're so persuasive. Oh, how they're so persuasive. We'll get to more applications in this for a few moments for us that we don't want to miss. But the foundations that we build our life upon, day by day, they matter. And that's why Paul establishes who he is as an apostle. Extremely clear. The apostle served a particular purpose in the life of the church to proclaim the inerrant word of God. And in God's good providence, we have Scripture written down, perfect, inerrant word of God that we're to build our life upon. So when people today may claim to be apostles, you should have sirens going off. Because the danger when somebody says they are above others, that the authority of God is in them rather than in the Word, you set up a situation that if you give it enough time, you can almost guarantee that person is going to teach things that are opposite of the Word. They're going to begin to put a yoke on the hearer. Paul actually is going to point that out in the life of the Galatian believers. The false teachers are putting a yoke like on an ox weighing them down, and he's going to expose them in that. What we build our life upon matters day by day, every single day. In 2019, every new year, we begin new habits, new goals in our life. Whether it's a reading goal or whatever it is, we build new goals in. And so many of those are based upon willpower and wittiness. That's why so much of the TV infomercials are 90 days. Whatever the days are, and if 70 days sounds more attractive, it'll be a perfect body in 70 days. And then it'll be a healthier you in 45 days. And then 20 days, in 10 days, and before you know it, it'll be by the end of this commercial. You'll have a better body. Just call and give us your money. That's, that's how it works. It's this enticement that there's a new me if I'll just do this little thing. If I just do this. That's the allure of the false teachers. That's the allure of the false gospel. The power is in you doing something. And then somebody says, it's just easy if you do it this way. And they say it's easier, but they all have something that it's you doing. That's the secret sauce that our world offers. And that's a false gospel. Rest assured that if someone is trying to persuade you to a new foundation, they are not persuading you back to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the incorruptible, incorruptible gospel includes a perfect foundation. And secondly, in 3 and 5, 3 through 5, the incorruptible gospel imputes a new identity forever. 
It gives over to an account. We'll explain that word a little bit more in a second, but let's go to verse 3. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Right? That word truly, or this is the truth. We were a part of a, a church uh, we were helping in North Omaha for many years. And they were in a, a, a very rough area, a very uh, poor, high, high crime-ridden area. And this church that we loved and, and loved partnering with for missions, uh, they, uh, they would say at the end of the prayer, they would say, uh, that's what's up. That would be their way to summarize amen. That's what's up. And so instead of saying amen, they would say, that's what's up. Uh, I'm not going to make us adopt that here. Uh, but I, so what, what drives Paul to say amen? What drives Paul to give this in that culture? That's what's up. What drives him to say that? It's this doxology. It's this song of praise. It's this bold declaration of truth that forces him at the very beginning of the letter to say amen. It's this truth right here. This is the gospel in a nutshell that we have right here in these few verses. He does what happens, so, so like in the book of Psalms, if you're, if you're reading through all the Psalms, it's broken down into five books, and four of them, the first four, finish with amen. They finish with this declaration of, that's the truth, truly. And that's what Paul does here at the very beginning of the letter. This declaration of truth, it calls him to cry out, amen. That's the truth. So, so what is the actual call that makes him say that? Look what it says. Christ, Christ in obedience. Not you in obedience. Not your spouse, not your parent, not your child in obedience. Who? Christ in obedience. And according to the will of our God and Father, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the just wrath of God. Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. This is the joy. This is the standing that the Lord's right standing, here's that word, has been imputed to your account. Imputed. Meaning to give over. It's like a bank account. It's like the Lord's right standing has been given over to us, to our account. It's been given over to you. You are now right before God. All the sin we've done, all the right living that the Lord has done has been given over to our accounts so that when God looks at your life, he sees a right and holy life. Not lustful. Not deceitful. He sees one who's right with him. His standing has been imputed to you. And this is the joy of the believer. We say, well, what about our sin? Why couldn't God just say, don't, just forget about it? Don't worry about your sin. No, because God is good and just and holy. Something had to be done with our sin. And our sinfulness was given over, if you will, was exchanged, was imputed over to Christ on the cross. And He, even though no deceit was found in His mouth, was led like a lamb to the slaughter, that He would become sin for us. That upon His body were nailed our sin. Our sins were nailed to his body on the cross. That's what draws Paul to say, amen. Right? Amen. Amen. That's the joy of the believer. The incorruptible gospel, it gives us a new identity. This is who we truly are. Grace to you and peace. 
grace to you and peace. We talked about this at our Christmas Eve service. I know you've thought about nothing else since that Christmas Eve sermon. It's just you can't get it out of your mind. In Hebrews 13, grace and peace to you. And we have it here, grace and peace to you. Scholars have called this the cause and effect statement of the hope of a Christian. This is the gospel in a nutshell, the cause and effect. Grace, unearned favor, that the Lord lavishes upon you being recipients of God's kindness and His grace, it gives us, what's the effect? Peace. Peace with God beyond circumstances. And then as a church and as a people of God, what's it to lead to? Peace through our lives and through our desire through a broken world to point people to peace and to strive for peace as we point others to the gospel. That's our hope and that's the goodness. False gospels will never do this. False gospels will always put a binding on somebody. They'll always put, a, a, they'll take, you've ever heard the statement, moving the goalposts? Right, this, here's the goal, and then, now here's the goal. Two weeks ago, we had uh, two nice Jehovah Witness ladies came to our door. And, and that is an example, a great example of a false gospel. It's a different Christ. And the things that they do, they're, they're relentless. And you look and say, wow, they're passionate. But they're trying to acquire for themselves to be acceptable before their different view of God. They're earning enough. They're trying to go and to store enough up. And so I ask them a question, what I, what I would encourage you at the very least to ask them is have you done enough good? Have you loved your neighbor well enough to be accepted by God? Jehovah. Have you done enough to which every adherent to a false belief system must answer if they're being honest, I hope so. I'm trying my best. I hope so. That is not what causes a church to gather and sing and praise the Lord. We hope we're loud enough. We hope we're pleasing enough. What gives a church joy and peace is Christ has done enough. Christ in obedience. He is enough. So the life we live as believers, we live as adopted believers by faith alone in Christ alone. We've been adopted and now we're called to live out a life of good works. Not to be made acceptable before God, but because we are acceptable before God. That is our true identity. That's what drives us together with the person behind you and in front of you if they're of Christ. You have the same identity regardless of your sports team. I know what those giggles are about. Right? Right. Don't even need to say a word, and you know. It's good to be in Texas. Right. The Lord is good. We have seen first and foremost that our perfect God has given his church an incorruptible gospel. So the question becomes, what exactly makes false gospels so enticing to every generation? To every generation of new believers and even older believers. What makes false gospels enticing? And he gives us this answer in verse 6 through 10. He'll flesh it out throughout the rest of the text. But I've summarized it there in point number two. The power of false gospels, it rests in man-centered pleasure and popularity. The power of false gospels, it rests in man-centered pleasure and popularity. Let's look at three components of this. Notice first that false gospels are not just academic issues, but they're deeply personal 
False gospels are not just academic issues, but they are deeply, deeply personal. Verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Did you see that? The grace of God in verse 3 is called by here what? The grace of Christ. Did you see that? Look there halfway through verse 6. Quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The grace of God is the grace of Christ. Right? You don't know the grace of God unless you know Christ. Put them together. And what is he, what's his reaction? He is astonished. Depending on your translation, it, it may say uh, marvels. He is, he's, he's, he's shocked. He can't believe his eyes. He's impressed. He's amazed. It's the same word here. This idea of being marveled, marveled at what's happening. I'm, first two words there, I am astonished. Astonished marvels, that word. John uses it in John chapter 4 to express the disciples' shock when they're coming and they see Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. Remember that story? The disciples come and they can't believe their eyes when they see Jesus standing there at the well, speaking and engaging with this scandalous woman. They're marveled. They're astounded. Just as the disciples couldn't believe their eyes, Paul cannot believe his ears. He is astounded. He's marveled that they would know the true gospel and yet be enticed by the false gospel of these false Jewish teachers. They're trying to add something to the goodness of the law. It's deeply personal because they're not leaving an ideology. Look what it said. This is important to catch this. Who are they deserting? They're not, they're not leaving a way of believing. They're not leaving a belief system. Who does he say they're deserting? Him who called you. Him who called you. Did you catch that? Him who called you. To leave Christ, to leave the biblical gospel, is not simply to exchange one way of thinking for another. It is to abandon him who called you. It's deeply personal. Christianity is intimately personal. It deals with the God who created us and sustained us and holds us together by every fiber of our being. The call to come to Christ is deeply personal. The teaching is that the, the God who knows you intimately, that knows every part of our personal sin, every part of our personal past and failing, every aspect of our lives, this Jesus died for it, personally, for a personal people. This is our hope. This is our life. Christianity is intimately personal. And the call to come to Christ is deeply personal. The gospel is deeply personal. We can't get around it. Here's why I want to make such a big point of this. Our culture uses statements like, what do you believe whatever you want to believe, but keep it to yourself. That is a command to disobey Christ's command to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. 
The two teachings can't exist. The teaching of our culture right now, the primary belief that says, you believe whatever you want to, but don't you dare tell somebody else how to live their life. That is the complete opposite with what the Word of God commands, not, not asks, but commands the discipler to do, the disciple of Jesus Christ. The calling is a command to leave your way of life and, and surrender to Jesus Christ. So if you have a particular view about something, the call and the command is to leave it. And it's deeply personal because everything you believe was taught to you by somebody personally. Whether it was a parent that taught you, so if you don't know Christ, you believe something that you've acquired from teachers, personal teachers. Maybe family, friends have taught you this. And Jesus Christ comes in His Word and says, you exchange what you believe, it's wrong. And you come unto Me. Come to Me. You can't get more personal than that. We saw in Titus and 2 Timothy, we're to be kind and, and, and wise in how we present the gospel. We're not to be a stumbling block because what's a stumbling block already? The gospel's already a stumbling block. It's intimately personal. You can't depersonalize the gospel. It's a threat upon how one lives their life. But it's the only true purpose for any person. I understand the call is offensive but it's the only purpose you have if you are Christ. And it's the only true purpose that will ever satisfy one or give them peace if they're living by a different worldview. No other gospel means that we must refuse to live by our culture's cry that says religion's off topic because it's too personal. We can't. There's no other gospel they're not all the same. So false gospels are not just academic issues, but they are deeply personal issues. And secondly, false preachers, in verse 7 through 9, false preachers build on false foundations that necessitate condemnation. False preachers build on false foundations that necessitate condemnation. Pick it up there in verse 7. He says, but there are some of you, there are some who trouble you. He's talking about these false teachers. There are some who trouble you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Pervert or alter, depending on your translation. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you the gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed accursed the false teachers are preachers and they're coming in and they seem to be persuading them i believe one of demonic forces greatest victories in our culture today is the belief that you're only in church and you only hear from a preacher if there's a pulpit and you're in a pew i believe that is one of the most powerful tactics of 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 the evil one in our culture today Every single person, 365 days out of the year, is in church. Everyone is. And they have preachers that are all around them. And they're skilled rhetoricians that are producing sermons that are being consumed through television, through media, through movies, through commercials even, everywhere. If you're in academia, you go to academia and there's worldviews that are being taught by somebody that's either being dictated by Christ or not. Everywhere, 
Every conversation we have is a sermon. People are trying to persuade us. Every person is an evangelist. Every one of us is trying to evangelize somebody to believe something else. The person that says to you, it's all just, just keep it to yourself, they're trying to evangelize you. Every day is a sermon. Everyone's hearing sermons. I used to hear regularly, I don't want to, I don't know what to do. And this is since I'm not mocking this at all. Don't mishear me. But I used to hear regularly, I, I don't want to force my teenager to come to church. Maybe they'll never come again when they get older. Your teenager is already in church, but they're staying home to their church. They don't want to go to youth group, they're staying home at church. I'm not talking about the weird online stuff, okay? I'm, uh, online church stuff, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that there are sermons that they're hearing and there's preachers they're hearing and there's media personalities that they're consuming that is dictating their beliefs in their life. They have preachers that just don't know it. The call for us as Christians is to realize we're called in our culture to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And I think that one of the major tactics of the evil one is to believe that you're only hearing sermons if it's coming from a preacher that our culture identifies in the context of a church building. What a mistake. Don't make that mistake. We cannot make that mistake, that God would give us discerning eyes. What does Paul say concerning the false teachers to the congregation of Galatia? In Galatia, these different cities, these different churches, he says to the false teachers, even if the false teacher says an angel told me this, which might be an insight to one of the tactics that they're using to try to persuade them, he says, let them be accursed meaning identify them and cut them off from the congregation. Get them out of there. Get them out. It's, this, it's almost like a, a pun. It's, remember, we talked about what's happening is there's this circumcision that's taking place. They're adding circumcision for the men. You, don't, you aren't really acceptable before God unless you go and become circumcised. This surgical procedure. And Paul takes it to the next level and he says, those guys... Let them be accursed. Let them be totally cut off. And later on, you remember we read last week, he's going to go even further. He says, I wish those guys would go the whole route and emasculate themselves. These are bold words. It's not politically correct, by the way. Right. But it's truth. We must take false preachers serious. And they're everywhere we go. May God give us discerning minds. Finally, as we come to verse 10, I've summarized our third component in this way. There is only room for one master in the life of a servant. We've seen the truth of the incorruptible gospel and its good foundation. We've seen the tactics of those that preach in a corruptible gospel that says if you just do this, then maybe you'll be good enough. We've seen the tactics that they use, the pressures, Leads us to verse 10. There is only room for one master in the life of a servant. There is only room for one master in the life of the servant. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We all know what peer pressure is. We all do. Even in small ways. From childhood on, we all know what peer pressure is. I, even in small things. I knew this a couple of weeks ago or whenever the... Uh, the SFA basketball game against Alabama, I, I, I doubly checked to make sure I wasn't going to be one of the only guys not wearing white, okay, out of the 7,000 folks that were there. I was like, okay, what am I wearing again? Uh, making sure we told Sarah's parents before they come down, make sure you bring white. We wanted to make sure we didn't stick out. That's peer pressure. Uh, right. 
we can relate to peer pressure in our lives. It doesn't go away. And Paul asks two rhetorical questions. See that? He has two rhetorical questions to the people. It's quite obvious. He says, question number one, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And the answer is what? I'm seeking the approval of God, and I'm being harassed by these false teachers, and that proves it. And so what's the answer by the false gospel people? Who are they seeking approval from? The world. Every one of us know what it's like to have pressure to want to be accepted by the ways of the world, by peer groups that we long for. Paul says, no, 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 no. Aim to be approved by God. And then he asks the second question, am I trying to please man? With the obvious answer being no. I am a servant of Christ, a bondservant of Christ. We are all servants. Every person that's ever walked this earth is a servant of someone in some way of thinking. The model that Paul gives us from the very beginning is we all have room for one master. There's only one master whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's Jesus. And every day as we aim to be more and more submissive to our good king as Christians, we will become more and more at odds with the culture. We will become more and more odds with the pressures of this world. I don't know if you're familiar with what's happening in China right now, but there is a groundswell of persecution upon the biblical Christian church. It's growing radically. A few weeks ago, I had a friend, I saw a video that a friend posted of a pastor named Wang Yi, pastor of a church in China, and he preaches this beautiful gospel-focused sermon. And as I was sitting there on that Saturday night watching this video with Sarah, oh, it was so good. And I had the backstory that I read underneath it that said this would probably be his last sermon. He wrote this sermon and preached it knowing that the communist Chinese government would probably crack down on him, and they did. It was the last sermon he's preached. He's been arrested. His wife has been arrested, and all the members of early Reign Covenant Church have been arrested, over 100 people. And they face possibility of being in prison for 15 years. He wrote a letter. He wrote a letter that he published a few months earlier before this happened. It's called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. We'll try and find it and tag it on the week-to-week -week for you so you can see it. You can search it. It's pretty easily findable. But I took out a few of the sections to show us the reality and the cost in our world today for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who recognize that there's only one master they can serve. As I read these words to you, these are just a few of the paragraphs of a much larger letter. But I pray that this would encourage you as it's encouraged me as we read the words of Pastor Yee knowing what would happen if he would publish such a thing and refuse to edit the gospel. He says this, listen. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of the glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of the, of the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life, 
This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. And for this reason, I accept and respect the fact that the communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant, John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward Him. And for this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline of the training of the Lord. At this time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. And as a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to display those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. If God decides to use the persecution of the communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their future, to lead them through the wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans. For his plans are always benevolent and good. I also understand that this happens to be a very, the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church who is no longer afraid of it. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. May that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them, separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is for my benefit rather than for yours and for your children's. I plead earnestly with you, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of lowly sinners such as I? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, eternal. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and this King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant and I am in prison because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's law. Oh, that God would make that our prayer. I'm going to ask us to do something we've not done before. Would we take two minutes where you're at to audibly articulate a prayer to the Lord praying for Pastor Yi and the Christians in China? The reality of a sermon that I've just given and you being here and listening and attesting to it as members of Grace Bible Church, if we were to relocate to China right now, we would very likely be facing the same sentence against our lives tomorrow. So I want to give us just two minutes. You can pray with the person beside you. Just articulate a prayer out to the Lord for the church that's being persecuted increasingly in China. I'll close this before our next steps. Let's go to the Lord audibly. Pray out for our believers. Intercede for our believers, fellow believers in China.
Oh, Father, you are good. And you are just. And Lord, we lift up to you the body in China. This is your bride. Oh, Father, as you purify her through this persecution, we ask, God, that you would strengthen their faith. That you would bring so many to know you as king. Or that you would bind the evil plans of the governments. Lord, you rule over every king. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith as your church. You've chosen to place us in a place we need not fear at this point any physical persecution for proclaiming you. But God, we know what it is to have pressure to serve other masters. Would you embolden us to be your servants? Would you embolden us to make disciples unashamed because you've given us a freedom to do so without this fear of persecution that they face? God, edify your body. Build them up. There is no other gospel that gives us life. There is no other gospel that gives us hope. And there is no other gospel that gives us peace but by your grace through faith in Jesus. And all God's people said together, amen. Our next steps. One question, one question. As our worship team comes, our next steps. The Lord has deployed us in the midst of a fallen age to be an army of gospel-sharing disciple-makers living in enemy territory. The belief, as it's proclaimed in Galatians, that there is no other gospel, is a declaration that we're still alive. He has placed us here, not called us to our heavenly home, because he entrenched us as an army of gospel-focused disciple-makers. That's our purpose. So my question is this, how might the belief fuel an urgency and boldness in our relationships and habits this week? How might the belief that there really is no other gospel, by God's grace, fuel us to be intentional in all of our relationships and all of our interactions this week and all of our habits? Do you feel comfortable sharing the gospel with somebody? Do you feel comfortable inviting somebody to church with you? Identify the areas that you know are weaknesses in your life. Address them directly. Get training. We as a church family want to walk together to make disciples. This is our calling. This is our life. We are not ashamed of the gospel. Where we are weak, he is strong. He is good. Would you stand together as we worship this king?